Judah and Matthew are dumpster people, and they occasionally use foul and inappropriate language. Listen at your own risk. Welcome to Brother Date, everybody. I'm Matthew. I'm Judah. Today we're doing something a little different. We're doing uh, the first in a Brother Date special report series. Ooh, we're reporters. In which we set out to answer the question, which Star Trek is the best Star Trek? Yeah, I think we kind of figured since we always um, <clears throat> we always go a good hour and a half on the Star Trek anyway, may as well, may as well let everybody know what they're in for right up front. Well, plus we've been getting a little sass. Um, your dear wife, of course, defends the original series. Yep, she is a fan of camp in general, so it makes sense. Uh, ben also told me uh, when when we were at dinner sometime this month that uh, that's his Star Trek too, because that's what his dad used to watch when he was growing up. Yeah, his dad's old. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's true. Um, so... Uh, what we thought we would do, and uh, I will be the first to admit that this is not not totally scientific, uh, we're going to go head-to-head. So uh, this week we're going to talk about the first episodes that aired of each of the five main Star Trek properties. Which would be uh, TOS, <clears throat> sorry, the original series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. That's right. Uh, notably excluded is the animated series, and that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there aren't very many of those episodes. Two, it's only half an hour. And three, it's generally not considered canon. Good, because I have never seen any of it. Yeah, it is also available on Netflix. So all of these are available on Netflix right now. That's right. Um, we didn't give you any warning for this episode. Um, these are all the pilots anyway. Yeah. Uh, if you want to play along at the end of this episode, I'll tell you what what episodes we're doing next week. Yeah. Um, so, let's come up with some criteria on which we wish to to judge and compare these these episodes. So, Matt, what are those criteria? Uh, so, <clears throat> one, what's the concept that that these writers are going for in this episode? What what take do they have on something? What are they trying to get across? I feel like that's an important one because Marjan and I often have an argument about an episode that we're watching, which is her telling me that the idea they had was really good and me saying who cares because um, uh, it was shite. Their execution it's, was shite. It's one of the traditional jobs of science fiction. Right. Is to shine a light on society. Um, so generally good science fiction expresses some point of view. Maybe just an interesting premise in some cases. Yeah. So we'll be taking a look at uh, what they're trying to accomplish, and then, of course, um, did they actually execute? Or did they fall fall on their faces and sprain their face dicks? That's their nose. Right. 
there are a couple more uh, things that that we are interested in, aside from just the premise. Um, I'm always interested in in world building. What did we learn in a particular episode that that fundamentally changes how you view the universe that it's set in? Right. What have they done to add to the universe, make it rich? You know, it's backstory things are are often the, the things that get me interested in a franchise. And when I was thinking about this <clears throat> for this particular batch of episodes, I wasn't just thinking about what they added, but was what they added anything? Or was it garbage? Sure, yeah. Yeah. So yes, not only are um, you adding to the world, to the universe, but are you adding in a, in a positive way? Is, are we better for knowing this, or is this a bunch of turds? Now, for instance, when we talk about Babylon 5... Technically, it's world building to introduce the Mutaido. Yeah, yeah, it is into the Sands of Blood. Step Walker, Walker Smith. Walker I was Smith. Yeah, Walker it Keel. is Walker. It is Walker Smith. We thought it was Walker Keel that one time. Bravest of his race. Yeah. Um, technically, world building, but so what? Right. Yeah. There that, is a blood sport in Babylon. Yeah, that whole episode is blood sport, and it is. It does not advance any plot or do anything for anybody. <clears throat> Except and let us the know that Garibaldi area. has weird friends. Right. Uh, and then the other area um, is characterization. And to me, this feels like an area that is mostly going to get low scores. <laughs> characterization is mostly noticeable in an episode when it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Based on what we have said about all of the Star Treks that we watch, I don't... Th- yeah, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people are going to score very highly on this. So... Um, what are the characters like? Are their characters growing and developing? Are they growing and developing in a way that makes sense? Is there continuity and consistency? Um, now I'm trying to take this on an episode by episode basis, and so I'm I don't want to penalize what happened in the pilot because I know what happens later. Right. When those episodes come, that's when I will penalize them because right. that's when the inconsistencies will appear. It's kind of a balancing act for these pilots because theoretically, and particularly in the original series, everything that happens is world building. Right. There's nothing has existed prior to this. Uh, It's also theoretically impossible to get bad characterization in the sense that everything we see here is the first thing that's been presented. But of course, we have knowledge. We've seen most of these shows. Yeah. At least once through. Um, so yeah, it, it is it is tricky to say. Well, this is not how Picard acts. Yeah, later in on. season five and six. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to penalize them on that count. I will penalize them if the characters that they are creating are deplorable and I hate them. Right. <laughs> that is that is when I penalize them. <laughs> so uh, so those are our four criteria: uh, essentially premise, execution, world building, and characterization. Yeah, this is basically just an excuse to make a list. Yes, or I mean, uh, it's a Google sheet. Yes, this is the uh, the list making uh, DNA that is in us both. The the gene is strong in us. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so without uh, without further preamble, I think we should begin by talking about the first episode that ever aired of Star Trek: The Original Series. Love that. Love that percussion. 
<clears throat> oh yeah, the jazzy drumming. Oh yeah, it's real. Okay, so when we when we decided to do this, I went back and I watched the first episode, but I watched the cage. Right. So, um oftentimes you see that presented, but that never aired. Right. Uh the first episode that we're considering is the first one that aired um just a little over 50 years ago today. We almost hit the whatever. Almost hit the milestone. Uh it's the man trap. Mm. So, Matthew, what happens in the man trap? I think this is the one we refer to as the salt vampire episode. Yes. Uh, the salt vampire actually turns out to be like a weird yeti with like uh, suction cup fingers. But um, Right. Uh, what happens in this episode is they visit a remote planet, as they do all the time in the original series. And um, that's actually a good place to start with our um, with our rating system, is because I felt like that was actually sort of the most effective way to introduce this crew and their mission was just to join them mid-mission. It's an established crew. They all know each other. They all have a mission and they know what it is. It's not like you're seeing the formation of it. And this is right. their this is their crazy mission, is they go to weird random planets and uh, do a bunch of bullshit that you can't believe they sent a ship to do this. Right. And they're there, by the way, to do a medical checkup on this researcher. Because he's just, according to the book, he's due. That's right. That is what they have them doing. This Federation starship is apparently just being shuttled around from planet to planet to give people their medical checkups. Yeah, maybe they were in the area or something, <laughs> but it's like, I think you're probably right. Look, somebody's got to go give this guy a checkup. He's due every two years, according to the book. This is the least dramatic version of, we're the only ship in the sector. Uh, and in the intro, Kirk says, yeah, this mission sucks and it's boring, but... <laughs> That's right. The wife of the researcher is, like, a special lady from McCoy's past. Yeah. And, um, is it standard procedure for Kirk and other Starfleet captains to make log entries on their way to the transporter room? Was there, like, a hot young thing, yeoman, following him around with, like, a a pad (laughs) so he could make that log entry? Because it starts with him going, Mr. Spock, temporarily in command. McCoy and I are on our way down to the planet. It's like, he literally must have done that on the way to the transporter room. The log entries in this one don't make, like, a whole lot of sense. Like, some of them... Some of them are after the fact, where they're like, look, we didn't know we were dealing with a shapeshifter. (laughs) And it's like, Doug, we barely know you're dealing with a shapeshifter. I know. Even just after, like, the teaser, when they come back, the the tense has has changed on the log entries. It yes. was present tense, and now it is all past tense. And you're like, oh, okay, when are these logs being entered? I'm confused. Yeah, so that's inconsistent. Yeah. Um, this was like the sixth or seventh episode that started filming. Right. But it but it was like, it was like the first one that was in good enough shape to air. So what do you think uh, of, of the decision of <clears throat> whether or not it was meant to be the first episode or not? of this being the introduction to this world and this crew. Well, so all of the episodes that they started filming were in this same vein. Okay. None of them were pilots. So that was intentional then. They were like, straight up, these guys exist, and they're just on their mission. Right. We are joining this mission in progress. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like that. So of the five series introductions that we watched, this one was definitely my favorite. I was surprised when I crunched the numbers, but I agreed. I was surprised because I always give the original series so much grief, but I just thought, as an episode, it was more effective than the other pilots. For that reason, among others. So I don't know, I'm not sure what 
which of the scores I think that factors into the most. But, I mean, the rest of them are contrived to various degrees about how we all, how they all got together. Yeah. Uh, none of them, of course, are as bad as the first Star Trek reboot movie. <laughs> no. Which they're... is, like, super contrived. Yeah, they're all uh, teenagers, and every week they have different jobs and abilities. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, none of this... Oh, and also, uh, half the crew hates the other half. Yeah. Uh, this is this is the case in from DS9 on. Yeah. Yes. Um, it tones down pretty quick in DS9. We'll see how long it lasts in the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, in The Next Generation, there's not that much internal conflict among the crew. There's, like, some weird interactions with Riker and Picard. Yeah, but they're definitely in a getting-to-know-you period. Right. They're like they're going to pick up half the crew at Farpoint Station, for instance. Right. Um, I would much rather that we joined a functioning crew. I agree, just based on the way the episode went went by. I, I felt like they didn't spend a lot of time on things that don't that aren't interesting. A lot of the stuff in the we'll get to the other pilots when we talk about them, but a lot of the stuff in the other ones, TNG and, and uh, DS Nine, is a lot of character introduction that right. could probably be best done just in the midst of a regular plot. And rather than having the plot be everyone gets to know each other, like this is just a regular episode, and we are getting to know them. Right. For instance, there's <clears throat> nothing in this about what a Vulcan is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's just Mr. Spock. He's just sitting there. Uhura gives him some shit for not being real emotional, Mm -hmm. and he tells her that Vulcan has no moon, for instance, (laughs) but, like, there's not that scene where Riker has to question Data about being an android and whether his degree is honorary. Yeah. Like, whether his rank is honorary or not. Definitely a thing you should ask somebody. Yeah. Riker. So, um, I like that. I thought that was was pretty effective. Yeah, I agree. Um, I actually, um, I didn't know where, like you, I didn't know exactly how to put, I I gave them some points on characterization for that. That's not really a a world building thing. It's more of a characterization and, and to a certain extent, concept and execution. But, um, now one thing that I thought was a little weak in this episode was premise. Yes. What is the premise? the premise of the man trap is there is a monster in space. That is correct. <laughs> I mean, that's really it. Yeah. There's some talk in this, and I don't know if it's tacked on or just it just got ignored. There's some talk in this about, so this salt monster is supposedly the last of its kind. Right. And the the doctor on the planet it's it's unclear whether he has just fallen in love with it. Kirk certainly accuses him of treating it essentially as a sex toy. Yeah, he's real into this salt monster that looks like his girlfriend. Uh, yeah. It's unclear how much this drives his actual motivation, but he he gives a lot of lip service about not wanting this race to go extinct. Yeah. Despite the fact that a species that has only one member is functionally extinct. Yeah, and also... um. I'm not sure that's what the writers wanted us to think. So the concept might actually be the opposite of that. Because the writers, I think, make it pretty clear that they they should definitely kill that monster. 
Yeah, Kirk that seems needs very to unmoved by those arguments. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's killing his crew. Right. Uh, so this monster can, like, make the people it's with see it as whatever. Whatever it wants. It's kind of, it's like a shape changer or shapeshifter or whatever, but it doesn't, I don't think it actually changes its shape. It's just, the people see it differently. That's very, that's very unclear to okay. me. Okay, I, I couldn't also. tell. Um, that's the thing that makes the most sense because the the beginning scene when all three people see something different, see something different, yeah, is okay. It's projecting an image in their minds in some way. They got that pervy like ensign there or whatever, who's just like straight up saying things about how she looks like some lady left on a pleasure planet somewhere. Wrigley's pleasure planet. And it's like, whoa, dog. First of all, you are in the company of like senior officers. Don't you know? You don't want to look like a boob. And also that it's McCoy's ex girlfriend. Yeah. So. Try to relax. It's like the girl from the fuck planet. I fucked fucked the girl who looked just like you. I think she's still there. I don't know. I don't talk to her no more. But I fucked her real good. Yeah. And McCoy's like, oh. Dog, that's that's my girlfriend. Yeah, Kirk snaps at him and makes him go stand outside. Where he gets uh, vampired. Yeah, right away. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's unclear to me whether she's projecting or actually changing shape. Uh, for instance, there's a scene where McCoy passes out, and then it pans over, and then you see McCoy standing there. And I think that that shot is mostly there, like, hey, see? See what we did? Yeah. It's like the parent trap opened this bitch. That's right, yep. Uh, but it's like, who's seeing it as McCoy in that instance? Yeah, I don't... Yeah. So if it's not physically changing shape, that shot doesn't make any sense. But yeah, anyway. That might be an execution problem. I think that is an execution problem. So, I mean, uh, so, uh, okay, so is it a concept or is it world building that they're introducing uh, telepathic shape changers? Because it's not a concept that there are monsters in space. That's what we were saying, right? Like, the, the concept is no concept. The, this is, this is, this has got basically no The concept, concept I believe, is uh, there are far-flung outposts in deep space and all kinds of weird shit happens on them. And welcome to this series, you're going to see some weird shit happen on far-flung outposts. Well, I think that's kind of kind of the case, because this this show is just like... Well, they said all the time, it's like wagon train in space, right? Yeah. They just want to show you adventures. Right. So they're not doing the work of hard science fiction in this episode, for sure. Yeah, that definitely comes later. There are many famous examples in the original series, where they are going for something real hard. But in this yes. one, I think it was just a little romp in space. Yeah. So if you, um, out of ten, what would you rate the premise of this episode? There's no premise. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, three? You think it's a three? I feel like it's a two. Okay. I would go with two. I'm okay with and it, two. And it only, well, it's okay. We we get individual ratings. Yeah. Um, it's only a two because of the lip service paid to the extinction of species. They talk a lot about the extinction of the buffalo. Yeah, I guess. So that's a, that's hilarious, of course. That's still to come, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> At some point in our near future, the buffalo will be extinct. I don't know. It seems like they're doing pretty good these days, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, Donald Trump, you know. Yeah. Um, so the premise is very weak, and that leads me to a problem with the execution because what are we judging it on because what are we judging it on they attempted nothing boy and you know i appreciated the execution because i think they executed on the things that we theoretically came up with that might possibly be a concept 
like um, there's adventures out in space. Yeah. But I also feel like that's world building, so I don't know. Um, execution's tough. Again, I just enjoying the episode, I enjoyed it more than the others, and I didn't see... You know, I didn't see anything that was awful. You know? Uh, I mean, I thought that the... Uh... The phaser stun effect was pretty... <laughs> pretty cartoony. Pretty insane. Also, that must have been, like, by far the lowest setting, because that guy is just kind of, like, dazed a little bit. But he's okay. He's, he's fine. He's He's got a headache, and it's hard for him to answer questions. He's like, oh... And he, and he talks slightly lower in pitch. <laughs> yeah. I guess it was, like, a fucking taser or something. He's all right. He's fine. Uh, but, I mean, I kind of feel like... They have acquitted themselves here because of the low bar that they set with the premise. Like, uh, so uh, to me, execution on this one is an eight. I think that is exactly the number I had. Hold on, let me check my notes here. Yep, I gave them an eight on execution. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, they're not trying for much. But frankly, none of these other pilots are either. It's that's the truth. I mean, the pilots, the other pilots are doing a bunch of admin work and bookkeeping. Um, but this one is just like a fun adventure to get started. Dog, did you notice how many times McCoy insisted that she hadn't aged? Yeah. Five I think times. he had to say it enough times that it was reasonable that someone else would be like, what are you What are you talking about? They definitely did that, because the first two times, Kirk doesn't say anything. Yeah. And the third time, Kirk goes, for some reason, feels like he needs to argue about it. Right, that was the weirdest thing. Like, do you th- why, why are you going to jump in and correct him? Yeah, in front of the lady's husband, too. Yeah, and be like, look, dog. I know. I know, you're into I know her. you were into her, yeah. but no, nah, she's she looks, she looks like the right age to me. She looks pretty old, kind of like you, buddy. Yeah, just got into it. Big argument in front of the uh, the husband about how old the wife was. Um, let's see. It, I mean, it, it introduced the uh, he's dead Jim thing. I saw that happen. Yeah. Um, just trying to come up with my general notes. Um. So, is this Uhura and Spock thing, is this the genesis of the shitty new movies? Their relationship in that? You know, I think we'll see. There's a couple of other little interactions between Uhura and Spock, but I this is the this is the famous weird characterization where Uhura's like, why don't you tell me I'm an attractive young woman? Oh, man. I'm like, Jesus. Dude, uh... She is just ball-busting in this. When Marjan and I went through and watched all these a few years ago, we definitely took away that Gene Roddenberry was trying as hard as he could to bring all of the races together. But and he gender-wise, was, he was not, not on the ball. I think he may have actually been moving that ball backwards. <laughs> because it is hard to watch sometimes, and in this episode is obviously, like... Yeoman Rand gets out of the elevator, and dudes are just like, Whoa, look at that! I wish she was my personal yeoman. <laughs> Give me some of that sweet action. And you're just like, oh, shit. This is the 60s. We are there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, of course, as we talk about on the show often, uh, of course, the, the alien has to turn into a black guy for Uhura. Yep. It is oh, mandatory. Who speaks Swahili, no less. Yep, I know. They speak Swahili together. So still some problems there, obviously. Um, yeah. Did you see Kirk run Serpentine? I did. I, he I, did a lot of low crawling, too. Yes. And one of those explosions went off way too close to him. <laughs> the guy's did like, you know he got, he got tinnitus from this episode? Oh, well. It's like basically one of the first episodes they did. 
I can believe that. Because, yes, you're right, those explosions were too close. But he hella ran Serpentine, and he looks so silly. I think he's got skinny little legs or something. Yeah, he he was in shape in a weird 60s way. <laughs> he's got, like, a broad like, chest. As in shape as you can be if you don't work out very much. Like, maybe <laughs> you do the thing with the springs. I just... Uh, and you definitely smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey all the time. Yeah. I appreciated that he did his own stunts, but I laughed so hard I fell out of my fucking seat. Yeah. The, um, well, there will be more bad stunt work to come as, as not just in, in the original series, but definitely in the original series. Uh, I did see that. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I liked, uh, I liked that in the, in this version of the future, McCoy's just got a big bottle of red pills in his quarters. <laughs> yeah, dog. Sleep, just for sleeping reasons. Yep. I wish I had some red pills. But there, by the way, there's like 200 of them in that bottle. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, um, it's a lot of these doctors are self-medicating and free to give out medication to whomever they wish, like whenever. The, uh, the country doctor and the pilot in the cage, who just like pours, uh, uh, Captain Pike a, a fucking glass of whiskey or whatever. Yup. And he's like, why don't you get sauced on this, Captain? Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the menagerie, you know, because we'll definitely keep doing this for that long. <laughs> when he shows up in his wheelchair, that's much, much worse than a regular wheelchair. Yes, it's much less functional than an actual wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, future wheelchair. Um, oh. I don't know if I have any other points. Oh, uh, the um, the husband of the monster or the keeper of the monster, whatever he ends up being, uh, explaining that it needs love almost as much as it needs salt. Yep, and that it immediately kills him. This is one of those things, um, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about home soil, Mm -hmm. where, uh, like, nobody gave a shit when they got down there, and they were not suspicious at all about how much salt the dude was requesting, but he was hella cagey about it. (laughs) We need, uh, we need that salt, though. You gonna get the salt for us? We could use some more salt. And they're like, eh, Okay, everyone knows you need salt. <laughs> we get it, dude. It's on the requisition form. You're going to get the salt. We got it. Also, no one cares about salt. <laughs> yeah, why is this so important? Like, we're not like, oh, this fucker needs more salt? And he's salt like, is so expensive. And then he's like, well, everyone knows you need salt out here. And the Kirk's like, yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, we know you need salt. Um, so world building is tough for this one. I, uh, I gave it a big fat score on world building. What did you give it? I gave it a seven. So you gave it a seven, and that's l- probably largely based on setting the tone for, like, this is going to be a bunch of dumb adventures. Yeah, we're going to dumb, remote, far-flung places to have dumb adventures with monsters. Everybody strap in and commit as much as Leonard Nimoy, who commits so much in this episode, that he is the oats of this show. Oh. <laughs> like, he's obvious, like, like oats and hollow oats cares more than anybody else about anything. Yep. Uh, Leonard Nimoy in this episode really goes for it. Uh, so, uh, for me, there was nothing really interesting about the world that it showed us. Like, there there was nothing that I wanted to dive into. Mm. Uh, I thought there was, like, a weird juxtaposition when Sulu was eating those food cubes in the plant lab. Yeah. Uh, but then he had regular ass spray bottles next to him, like, straight up Windex spray bottles full of colored liquids. (laughs) Right. And it's like, oh, that's cool. So, (laughs) food is cubes now. But 
uh, you definitely use this 1960s spray bottle technology. There's a lot of eating in that episode. There is. Kirk's eating on the bridge, yeah. which is weird. That's this. That's more of a subject for the next thing. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of stuff in this episode that uh, you never will see again. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, and that's tough because we talked about trying what are not. you penalizing. Yeah, trying to penalize it later when they become inconsistent. Not so for me, world building on this one, this is a straight five. Like, yes, you're right that it sets the tone for the series. Yeah. Um, but did you enjoy it? There was like there was nothing that made me think, "Ooh, what would it be like to live in a world where one guy can in, in, live on a planet all by himself?" Yeah, that that does seem odd. <laughs> um, the echoes of this episode in the Next Generation, I thought there were a couple. Sch- schizoid uh, man. Uh, schizoid man. Uh, well, yeah, he just one dude who lives on a planet with a lady. Uh, always have Paris. Uh, yeah, sure. Although I think they had other crew that just die, so we never meet them. That could be, yeah, just the wife makes it. She's secluded in some safe space. Uh, right. But she's, again, that's like someone from one of the characters' pasts that's married to a researcher in a distant location. That now. makes sense, yeah. And that they just have to go check up on. Um, there's a little bit of the survivors, Kevin Uxbridge, in this. Sure. In the sense that this guy is living with this... Fake thing simulacrum of his dead wife yeah um that's for sure and he wants to keep living that way yeah he like, knows the, the secret he wants. and he's mad that they came to interrupt it they didn't even right. good thing he didn't need any salt he would have been really mad kevin uxbridge yeah so like all of that stuff sort of sort of echoes forward from this episode yeah uh, and of course we will see hundreds of monsters in space yes so many different kinds i enjoyed it i uh weirdly I, I, I was not expecting to enjoy it. Um, at least characterization, I guess. So I didn't know what to make of this. I didn't understand a lot of what was happening. Is Sulu the gardener? Uh, he appears to be the gardener. Scotty was not present at all. Right. Like, just, just not there. All right, so who do they introduce and how do we feel about him? All right, they introduce Kirk. Kirk, yes. to me... Even if you were going to go into the future, he seems pretty consistent. He seems like Kirk. But what is what does that mean? He's kind of... I mean, he's sassy. Right. He's uh, he's always smiling, like, in a knowing way. Yeah. Like, he's definitely. got everything pinned down. Even though he, his, the fucking wool is pulled over his eyes the whole episode. Uh, he runs... He's, 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 like, he's real jokey. Yep. Like he he's he cracks wise about uh, Space Commander Dominguez and his chili peppers. Yeah, he does. That's I can't believe that's my, one episode. of my favorite things in all of Star Trek, and it's right right here in the first episode. Space Commander Dominguez. I love when you put space in front of somebody's title, just yeah. to make it seem more spacey. You know, he's a, he's a whole space commander. Uh, I I will say, uh, Memory Alpha in the quotes section listed as base commander dominguez oh, i is, do not believe that's that correct not correct we heard it i'm 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 almost 100 sure it's space commander dominguez mm-hmm. i think that's correct um he's got prime mexican reds he handpicked them himself he can wait a few days for him all right yeah <laughs> tell jose he'll get his chilies uh so he's jokey um but he's action kirk too because he runs all serpentine yes. and crawls around on the ground uh, he's actiony. He cares about his crew and his ship. Yes, 
to the exclusion of like high flung ideals. Yeah, like the extinction of races and things right. like that. He is not he's unmoved by that argument. Uh you don't see anything here of his eventual relationship with Spock. No. Like they barely they barely talk to each other. Yeah. And uh I don't think he's that clever either, because he seems to be behind on the eight ball and everything. I always thought he was kind of the Riker type who they have him sniff out bad guys right from the start, but he, he does not, he doesn't put his finger on this one. Yeah. But he still feels like Kirk. Yes. Uh, Spock, really not really in this episode. He's kind of yeah. in it. He, he tries to I punch mean, so, the beast. Yeah. We learned, we learned that he's uh, pretty strong, that his blood is different from humans, etc. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but he's not particularly emotional. I mean, Uhura gets on his case about someone being dead in the transporter room. Yeah. And he's like, well, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, they'll let me know if they need me. He's actually pretty emotional when the thing's attacking Kirk. He beats the crap out of it, and he keeps screaming about how it's trying to kill the captain long after he has separated it from the captain. Yeah, It's killing the captain! It's like, no, the captain's just sitting over there. Yeah, but he was, like... He was not getting it back together after that. Yeah, that's right. He was just sitting there with a dumb blank look on his face, so maybe it was still telepathically. It doesn't make <laughs> the any sense. The scream that Kirk made made me laugh so hard, too. Oh, yeah. He lets in a real high-pitched weird scream. Yeah, he does. Well, that's what it's like when something is sucking all the salt out of your body, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of Yeoman Rand in this. I don't really... I don't know what to make of that. And she's pretty... Uh, I thought... Th- the creepy guy is following her around, staring at the salt shaker on her tray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, she's not that phased by this guy. No, dude. She, she the... just like says to Sulu, he's been like this all day. I think he's space happy. I think he's space happy. Yeah, uh, she's in the space 60s, yeah. where people are just constantly trying to look up her skirt and shit. Yeah, so probably. I think she's just okay with it at this point. Um... Yeah, and we already talked about the stuff Uhura and Spock, and McCoy uh, is a fucking idiot in this episode. Oh, for sure. Just dumb as so many rocks. So, Anything else to say about McCoy? Uh, boy. I only ask about every individual character because this is their introduction. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. In the future, Again, I'll try to keep the, it to the I people who the are in the plot. sleeping pills were weird. Yeah. And he's he's uh, immediately ready to commit a hundred percent to this woman he hasn't seen in ten years. Oh yeah, just as soon well, as she is her. that one woman from his life. Yep. I do like the idea that everybody's got one. That's right. The clearly implicit idea in that. Um, I thought the characterization was a was a little off, but mostly, it's actually mostly pretty settled. I gave it a five because I didn't necessarily enjoy the characters. Yeah, uh, I don't like what Uhura is doing. Yeah. Like, she's clearly just teasing Spock because he's an alien. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. He won't really understand what you're doing to him, so it's good stuff. So that's not great. Yeah. Uh, I feel like... I feel like I'm giving this one a six, I think. Okay. So, if we total it all up, uh, we gave it a total of five for premise out of twenty. Uh, 16 for execution. All right. Uh, 12 for world building. Okay. And 11 for characterization. 
that's uh am I right that that's oh wait I should set this spreadsheet up to add these up <laughs> these are simple numbers oh boy uh 44 there you go out of a possible 80 yeah I gave it uh, I gave it 23 so that means you gave it what 21 yeah so we're pretty close on this one mm-hmm. which is about medium but I would expect we're gonna get very few, very high scores. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of the other ones are going to be close. We'll go faster on the other ones. We'll we'll move yeah. it a little, move it along. But they're all going to be a pretty close score for me this week. Any closing remarks on the man trap? Uh, Anything you think we should have said? No, I um even though I saw it pretty recently, I didn't remember a lot of it. And um, again, I was pleasantly surprised. I'm actually looking forward to watching the next one. Can I say that I remembered that it was the Borgia plant? And I don't know why. I did not remember that even a little bit. Except yeah, that it they... fooled nobody. Everyone the whole time was like, nah, I couldn't have been that. When he said there's something in his mouth, I'm like, that's the Borgia plant. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even remember that the salt vampire was a yeti. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, to me, when you say salt vampire, I actually get an image of that episode where the androids reduce everybody to those uh, mycosahedrons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So with that, let's move on to the next generation. Oh, man. Encounter. We should be able to move. Do that. We we should be able to move pretty quick on this one because I feel like we've talked about this on this show. Encounter Farpoint. Yeah. yeah. Um. Do you, do you want, do you want me to describe Encounter at Farpoint? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So the Enterprise uh, under Captain Picard is going to Farpoint Station to pick up the rest of its crew and evaluate this place as a future starfleet facility when uh q who is a big asshole comes in and tells him to go back to earth and then puts him on trial and agrees that the fate of humanity will be decided by what they do in this upcoming mission yeah all right meanwhile on farpoint uh some eagle-eyed enterprise crew notice that a it doesn't seem like these people should have been able to build this station and B, magical genie wishes are being granted on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the famous example being Riker and his apples, which we've talked about. Yeah. While they're trying to suss this out, a strange ship uh, enters orbit and starts attacking the city. Um, eventually, searching under Farpoint Station, they discover that that is also a ship. Uh, Q appears again at this point for no good goddamn reason to tell them to destroy the the thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just being a dick, I think. But instead, they feed it energy, and it rises from the planet's surface and joins its mate in space and flies away, and Q says, I'll get you next time, Gadget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the Enterprise's crew is all together as a big, happy family. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to start by giving my score and and why I want to give it that score so we can move this one along. Okay. So I'm going to start on the, the concept, the take it's trying to have. As far as I can tell, the concept is Q, right? Uh, that Earth, it's the space future. It's even more the space future than the Star Trek you're used to. And have humans really come that far? Or are they still dangerous and unevolved? Right? And Q is going to be the judge of that. And that's basically this, the concept, right? This is what he is putting them on trial for, is barbarism. Yeah. That they are still a barbarian race and that they don't belong out here in space. Yeah. I don't really care for that concept in general. I mean, it didn't do anything for me. 
but at least it had a concept, right? That was the concept. That is true, and in a sense, what it is saying is this will be a show about analyzing how far we've come and how far we have to go. Yeah, and the human condition in general, which I think the whole character of Data, I think, is meant to be the right what gets you along that direction and all the good speeches by Picard so, and everything. That's a big contrast from there are monsters in space. That's right, yes. There is much more of a concept. But how much... I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you, I gave it a 5 because I didn't I didn't get any joy out of the concept. Uh, I, I well, thought there was a asking, concept. It's asking a question and not saying anything right. definitive. So, um, again, that's a little murky to me. Like, I suppose... It didn't say the, it turns out it's man. <laughs> like the, uh... I suppose that the the answer we're supposed to take away is that this crew is going to be able to handle it, mm-hmm. and that it's it's we're it's going to prove that humanity is capable. Uh, I also think a five is a reasonable score for the premise of this episode. Yeah, I I didn't think it was strong because again, like you said, there's no there's no strong take on anything. It's just like, uh... <sighs> have we really come so far? Because in the beginning, Picard's all cocky about it, and then he has to take a few steps back and realize, oh, okay, maybe we're not... Maybe we haven't come as far as we thought, or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I gave it a five. Yeah. Uh, so then, with that as the premise, how well did the show execute? I gave it a three. Let me tell you why. Are we supposed to base... Since they're only asking the question and we are left to fill in the answer for ourselves, are we supposed to base it on that terrible mission? That is an right. awful mission. It was a bad mission. It was boring, and I don't think it said much about the crew, except that they were able to not fall for cues like, um, uh, f- fucking reverse psychology. Yeah. He keeps showing up it's in their ears and going, oh, I don't know, maybe that guy's a bad guy, you should probably kill it. And they're like, uh, yeah, no, we're good. It's not a tricky puzzle, and you also get the impression that they don't really solve the puzzle until Grappler Zorn says, it was injured, we fed it! <laughs> yeah, and then, then, even, then they're like, ah, oh, that, got it, yeah, even, cool. Even Picard is like, oh, the final detail, or whatever. Yeah, it's like, that's the point where it seems like everyone gets what's happening. This is not like, um... This is not like in The Survivors, the episode I talked about, where Picard seems to understand what's going on basically right away. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so much so that he's just constantly like, oh, don't worry about that Husnog ship. Don't even shoot at it. Yeah. I mean, that's very in keeping with Picard anyway. Yeah. It's the, let's not shoot at anything or raise our shields ever. But So we agree it's not a great episode. But no, in terms of not. it being the first episode, I think it's important that we talk about world building and, and characterization. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm going to give it. I'm, I'm only giving it a two for execution. Okay. Okay. So so far, we've both given it eight points. It sounds like. Did you give uh, it six on concept or five? No, I gave it five okay. on uh, premise right, so. and two on. So I've given it seven. And you've given it eight. It's not scoring well. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like point, concept and execution point... are always going to be judging the individual episode and world building and characterization are going to be more like what is going on in this series. Yeah. So, uh, so world building. Um, this one actually does some things. Mm-hmm. Like, it tells you a lot about Earth's history. Yes, it does. 
um, that even as someone who watched all of the original series, like I've seen every episode of the original series, not a lot of this stuff is in there. Yeah. Like there, there are some broad ideas like the eugenics war. Right. Um, but you definitely don't, you don't get the idea that earth was like what we see in that courtroom, for instance. Yeah. I wonder if people who were fans of the TOS when, the next generation started to air felt the same way about the next generation as I do about enterprise, which is that they're always trying to have a take on the world, on the universe and that it ruins everything that came before it. I wonder mm. if like TOS fans were like, this is ruining TOS because it's changing all of the history. And for some reason, nobody in TOS ever talks about any of this stuff and its effects aren't felt and things like that. Or do you suppose it was done well enough that people are like, they were welcome. welcome. It's hard to say because I didn't pick up the next generation till season three, and of course, I didn't know any adults who had seen S- Star Trek. Yeah, we this were... is not something that was in our family. We were children. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think uh, it makes some world building attempts. Unfortunately, one of the world building attempts it makes is something that I really don't like, which is Q. <laughs> yeah, there is so... a Q. There, is, there are these seemingly all-powerful beings right. out there, and everybody just goes about their business. Yeah. Like, it's not a big deal. I think we talked about this. There's no think tank. There's no one sitting there going, what do we do about this? Right. Who are the people who are even trying to figure out what Q's abilities really are? We'd never see them. Yep. He just shows up every once in a while, and Picard treats him like a nuisance. Like, uh, like Urkel. Like Urkel coming into the house. He really is like like Urkel. Even though he leads to so many deaths and problems. So I think they try a lot, but one of the one of the things they try I super hate. Uh for me this one's right about a five in world building. I gave it a seven, and the reason I did is because not only did it give us a lot of the stuff about Earth's history, but they show us a lot of the differences between TOS and TNG in terms of uh the makeup of the crew, you know, you got androids and Klingons. Uh, there's a holodeck, which is going to be a major player on this show. They're letting you know. They're like, oh, that is, we're, that go- is true. we're going on so many holodeck adventures. This is the first of many. Um, and uh, stuff like that. I feel like they did a good job of sort of establishing that this was a, a newer, fancier Star Trek. I guess, to me, like, having a Klingon on the bridge is kind of not a big deal. Like, there's a Vulcan on the other Enterprise. Yeah, and I felt like Data was the Vulcan. Data is I definitely didn't really supposed know to be Spock. what to make of Worf, necessarily. But there's, I mean, there's a scene where old-ass McCoy hands off the mantle of Spock to Data. Yeah, right. And there's a blind guy, and, you know, they're like, oh, look at all this, look at all this stuff. There's so much new stuff. I think that, if anything, they're trying to continue the tradition of inclusiveness and diversity that, again, was only half executed in the Oh, that's right. Also, there's women, and they're not only sex objects. Right. One of them is the chief of security, for instance. Right. Or, it's... It's hard to say that Troy is not a sex object in this show. Yeah, they well, for one thing, they 
tarred her up by putting her in that little skirt, and then they changed that to some uh, low-cut tops Right later on. Um, but she's like, she has a sexy past with Riker. Oh, yeah, she does. Just read she's the book, She's talking everybody. in people's minds all the time. She's crying on the bridge. Oh, boy, yeah, she is. Fuck. Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I felt like they were making a, a strong effort. Okay, so you give him a seven. Yeah. Uh, characterization. Yeah. So we meet almost everyone. Yes. Um, so probably not worth going over them one at a time. Yeah. Here. Uh, what stood out to you about characterization in this episode? To me, Picard is kind of underserved in this episode. I mean, what do we really learn about Picard? He's an ass around children because he says so with his own mouth. So, yes, we don't learn much about him. The star is obviously supposed to be Riker, right? Right. Yeah, they're pitching Riker. Riker is the, the motherfucking star of the show. He sees Groppler Zorn one time and he goes, I don't fucking trust this fucking guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he can he can guide the saucer section back onto the hull of the ship by giving some simple instructions. And uh, he's a big fucking hero and everything. Um, other standouts. A lot. There's a lot of yar. Too much yar. Because she's bad. <laughs> she's not a good character. All she does uh, is yeah, shout she, and overreact. They do, they do jam her circumstances right into this one. Yeah. She grew up on a planet where they had courtrooms like that. Again, that doesn't... What is the Federation? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> that planet of hers doesn't make any sense, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, what's sad uh, is seven years later of the next generation, we're still... We need more world building to yeah. figure out what is happening. Um, and then I think the other standout obviously has to be Wesley. They're clearly laying groundwork for something there. And I guess Data. Right? So they kind of give you four characters that they throw in your face a lot in the first episode. Yeah. Um, but I do think, uh, if you have to jam it full of introductions, I feel like they were mostly effective introductions. It's just, um, Picard and Worf and maybe... Jordy that come off a little bit underserved. Yeah. Well, Jordy has a lot less to do in this episode. Yeah. Uh, it is fun that there's an early glimpse at Chief O'Brien. Yep. Uh, Battle Bridge Chief O'Brien just hanging out. Yep. They don't call him anything. Do they even call him Chief or nothing? No. Okay. They don't have a name or anything. Yeah. Call Meanie, dude. I, again, I, someone needs to explain. He needs to come and explain this to us. Why he was in Star Trek and why he stayed in Star Trek so long as a recurring character a couple of times a season. It was weird. Yeah. Uh, characterization, do you have a score for me? I gave him a 7. I thought it was effective. Okay. That's that's pretty good. Um, I guess uh, some of the characterization, because it was getting to know you, was like way too on the nose. Like You yeah. don't have to point out that Data is Pinocchio. Yeah. Like. Well, Data has to give a lot of uh, fucking exposition, too. Like, oh, I am superior in many ways. Here's my mental capacity, and I can do this, this, and this. And and he pulls Data out of the water and every. I mean, he pulls uh, Wesley out of the water with one hand and everything. And you're just like. They really wanted you to know a lot about Data. Yeah. So, this. I mean. This is something I liked less than the the crew all know each other of the man trap. Right. Um, it has a little a little ham fisted like Picard is uncomfortable with children, so he's gonna 
he's gonna make a big speech asking Riker to help him with children. <laughs> that was that was awful. Like, it's not gonna be enough. They can't just show that he's like weird with Wesley. Uh, like Wesley's sex uncle. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so for me, um this does less less good a job of characterization than in the original series. I think it's a four. Okay. Alright. Uh so you Matthew gave it 22. Yep. So that's one less than you gave the mantra. Yes. Uh, I gave it 16. So Boom. that's five less. And again, you know, something about them being weighted equally or us trying to find the specific factors that go into it. it my score was better than the way I actually feel about the episode as a whole. That's an interesting point. I find like it you to add- be a garbage episode. When you had those up, it's like you gave it one point less than the man trap, but I feel like you enjoyed it a lot. Less. And I think you see it in those first two scores. I think I enjoyed the episode The Man Trap a lot more, and I think I enjoyed the efforts at world building and characterization more in the uh the TNG one. So maybe as we go through this we'll figure out what missing element makes up for that disparity. Yeah. Um but uh, let's move on now to Deep Space Nine. Even faster this time. Right. I think that's the longest intro clip of any of them that I chose because I like that one the most. Yeah, it's not bad, especially when Worf shows up and it's got the good thing in the bag. It's like, uh, it's got some more bass going on to it. So Matt, tell me about Emissary. All right. This is the one that you complain about the most, because uh, it starts off as, uh, oh, here's, meet Ben Sisko. His wife died in the Borg attack at Wolf 359. Now he's off to some far-flung outpost on the fucking frontier where he's going to run into thieves and smugglers. It's a real Babylon 5 premise Mm -hmm. uh, that is instantly ruined, as we always point out, 15 minutes in when, guess what, they discover a wormhole to another part of the galaxy that's distant and... uh, uh, it's going to change the way the whole universe works in terms of exploration and uh, and all that crap. So they discover a wormhole that's going to lead them to another part of the galaxy, so they'll have zany adventures on the other uh, the other side. Yep. And that's essentially it. Uh, there's some stuff about Cardassians. So they're really trying to build up the uh, Cardassian-Bajoran thing. They're trading off of, like, Season 5 and 6, the next generation. Right, the Cardassians have left, but for some reason they're still real salty about it. Yeah, they've left, but they don't want to leave, and they're going to try to take Deep Space Nine back. And, um, you know... The the Major Cure doesn't really want them there, and doesn't believe in the provisional government. Right. Yeah, there's some... uh, There's an introduction of political intrigue that doesn't... I think, over time, you'll find that it doesn't really go anywhere, but... Right, yeah, the person that she says... Cisco needs to meet if if they're going to bring the people together is Kaiopaka. Luckily, Kaiopaka super wants to meet him. It is it is and a also great coincidence. Immediately gets a lady boner for him. <laughs> That's right. She feels up those lobes, man. She she gets at that paw. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Did I leave out any important points about what happens in the episode? That's the episode, right? They they uh, stop the I Cardassians mean, they in meet the end. The Bajoran gods. Yeah, okay, so there are aliens that live inside the wormhole. The Bajorans consider them prophets. Um, and they call them the prophets, but they clearly are gods. Yeah, it's true. That is kind of a weird misnomer. Yeah. They uh, they're, they live apart from time. They don't understand right. the idea of linear time. And they have. they also appear to be nearly omnipotent, so... 
Right. Although only within the wormhole, it's less clear. Yeah. What their sphere of influence is. So Cisco has to decide whether he wants to continue his career in Starfleet on this far-flung outpost with this new responsibility, or whether he's had enough because he misses his dead wife or whatever. And that's really it. Other than that, it's just introductions. Yeah, I agree. Um, so tell me what you thought of the concept of this episode, uh, The Emissary. So I suppose if if you think the concept of the episode is an understaffed, ill-equipped outpost suddenly becomes the nexus of the universe. Mm. Is that the concept? I mean, isn't it? What else is? If that's concept, it's going to get a really low execution score. Let me just tell you that. Because yeah. if that is the nexus of the universe, why don't they do? Why don't they send an admiral there or something? Uh, that is a very big question. But to me, that's a yes. That that was a problem I intended to raise. Like, okay, good. It is insane that this guy who is sent to run this backwater outpost that clearly nobody cares about, yeah, is left in charge after it becomes so important. Yeah, I thought the premise was. Sort of internal to Ben Cisco, right? Is the I think the premise is: is there room in Starfleet for this guy? Is he a hero, or is he is he too broken? Because mm. the whole first half of the episode is him just kind of moping around and complaining. Essentially. Yeah. Well, he doesn't want to meet Picard because Picard was Locutus, yeah. so he's got... Picard killed his wife, you know. He's got some shit he can't get rid of. Yeah. Um, and then they send him to this place in the middle of nowhere and he's got to raise his kid. And he's like, what yeah, is this garbage? He's a single father. Yeah. And he's coming to a place that is, like, not ideal to raise a kid. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even have beds. They don't have beds? Uh, Chief O'Brien is going to try and get him some beds from the Enterprise. Major Kira spends uh, like eight hours a day clearing debris, it looks like. Right. Nothing works. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I I mean, to me, I thought the premise was Cisco-oriented, but it, the okay. a, on a greater... You're right. I mean, the show is... This was a backwater, but now it's important. But how important and in what ways we'll find out. To come... Yeah. I gave it a four. So you think... <laughs> the premise. And this is this is because you don't think that's much of a take? Or yeah. because you don't care much for that premise? I don't care much. I don't... I, if... I thought... Based on what I thought the premise was, I just didn't... It didn't move... Didn't move the needle for me at all. See, I feel like it's more... Given my take on the premise, I feel like it's more of a swing. Mm. Like... They are setting up that this is the wrong the wrong place and the wrong group of people for this to be happening to. Right. Yeah, they're too distracted by their own problems. And I mean in a sense they really are. Like like Kira only really cares about what's going on on, on Bajor. Yeah. Cisco doesn't want to be there. It's uh, everybody else is a real zero, real cipher. Yeah. 
Um, and everyone can, like, and everyone, can, everyone else is an accessory character in this. And you're right; even those people consider it the frontier and just somewhere weird to go. Like this is a weird place. Yeah, like yeah, this place sucks. Yeah, I mean Bashir is like pretty offensive about how frontiery it is. <laughs> yes, well, he shouldn't say it to the people who live there. Obviously, yeah, it's not it's not a cool, not a good look. <laughs> yeah. Um. But anyway, I think that is kind of a swing. Uh, for me, the premise is a seven. Okay. All right. But I, uh, as we jump right into the execution, yeah. um, it's hard to say whether I think the execution was bad or whether I just did not care for this episode. Yeah. Um, internally, I feel like we've got another two on execution here. Yeah. I gave it a four again. And the reason is, I've, no matter what we thought the premise was, I do think like we led into this with, I think they spent so much time trying to introduce the characters and tell us about the characters, that there wasn't really much to be done story-wise. And I I really feel like part of it is, is they have to waste time on conflict. Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. Like, so let's talk about uh, that. Like, Cisco and Picard. Yep. It doesn't matter what Cisco thinks about Picard. We're not going to be seeing Picard. Now, how much of that was... Uh, they thought it would be cool to have that, and how much of that was they wanted people to watch it so they had to include someone from the next generation? I'm sure... So the next generation was still airing. Yeah. I'm sure this tie-in was in part a a ratings move. Yeah. And I think it's important that we note that DS9 opens with a next generation tie-in and Voyager opens with a DS9 tie-in. Correct. So they're trying really hard to like be like, "Hey, you like this other thing, don't you? You like it As a little? If, okay, maybe you'll like this one." As if the Star Trek audience wasn't going to keep watching. Yeah. That's right, yeah, because that's what Star Trek fans are known for being, is uh, real casual about it. Yeah. It's like, I take it or leave it. So they wasted time with that. Um, Kira not wanting Starfleet there is interesting, but they spend a lot of time on it. She makes a lot of big speeches. As she will throughout the series. Yeah. Uh, she she has a lot to say. Yeah, the character is uh, an over-actor. Not even the actress, uh, the character itself. Uh, Odo and Quark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a relationship that could have waited. Adversaries. Yes. Yeah. Um, and devoting time to showing Cisco tricking Quark to stay on board for the good of the station does not advance the premise of the story at all and also i don't i didn't even understand his rationale why does it matter you have replicators and shit like who cares yeah it, it really doesn't make a, like just put a 10 forward the, there who it's cares? for the social good of the station just make a 10 forward like it doesn't have to be quarks yeah. i don't know uh yeah i think you're right i think they spend a lot of time on stuff that doesn't need to be done and so they don't spend enough time on the episode itself yeah they wanted they wanted to play up this conflict like this is not the next generation where everybody gets along and by then, in even by in the next generation, they'd introduced some characters, and we'll we'll talk about this more in Voyager. But we'd seen some characters that were not not well regarded. Like yeah. we'd seen Barkley, we'd seen Rolaren, mm -hmm. who gets a very shitty reception. Yes, she does. She walks out on the ship. On we'll talk about this a hundred episodes from now. And Riker's just like, take off that goddamn earring, you little bitch. She's like, yeah. oh, all right, cool. Tam Elburn? Um, Tam Elburn was the other, it was the, exactly yeah. the other example I was going to give. 
Uh, yeah. Kaczynski could theoretically be another one. Yeah. Um, but, but like Ro Laren, they really, they must have really loved that part of that episode. I think they love everything about what is really post Roddenberry TNG. The people that I think are that's running, about who was in in charge of Deep Space Nine? That's what I'm saying. People running Deep Space Nine are the people who are running are basically the same people who are running TNG post Roddenberry, so seasons five through seven, and yeah. that's why there's I think a lot of similarity there, and they trade on each other and stuff. Um. So yeah, so I didn't, you know, I, it doesn't sound like we were able to give it high marks on execution. Yeah. So let's talk about world building. Okay. What are they doing right here, and what are they not doing right? Uh, so a lot of this is what we just talked about. So they're trying to describe a universe that is very unlike TNG, that it's not the idyllic space future. It's the other space future, where there are uh, smugglers and criminals that live and work on the same station as these Starfleet people and all that stuff. Right. This is more like Tasha Yar's home planet. Or that place Jameson sold all those weapons to. <laughs> right. Those parts this of the Federation like, we don't understand. <laughs> this is not the flagship, and these are not the best people. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And, um, so, I, th- so that's what they're doing. Um. <sighs> I found it hard to give them a lot of credit for world building based on the fact that they were trading so much on TNG and also on Babylon 5. I felt like they were directly trading on on J. Michael Straczynski. We knew they had seen the whole script, script treatment and, and all that stuff. It is hugely similar yeah. to what what is happening in Babylon 5. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of... Um, it's really derivative... I mean, this. I mean, even to the degree of, there are two alien races fighting here, mm-hmm. and humans are caught up in the middle. That's right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I gave them a six on world building because I feel like they are they are attempting a lot of stuff and they're trying to make it different from TNG. But I just I didn't know how much credit to give them for it because it seemed so hackneyed and derivative. <coughs> well, you know my take. That the initial premise that we're presented with Mm -hmm. is interesting, and that it immediately is sold out. Yeah, and in fact, it's never like that again. It 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 isn't. I didn't want to give it. I didn't want to take away points for what happens after this episode, but it never really is considered to be the frontier anymore. After this episode, yeah, that it is Uh, instead a base of operations for exploring and meeting zany new aliens and stuff. So for me, um, my world building score here is a two and it's not, (laughs) it's not because of what is in this episode versus what's in the other episodes of the series, but it's what it, uh, what it could have been, what we are initially tricked into thinking it is before they are afraid that their premise is not interesting enough and they have to crank it up. Yeah. It's like, uh, they wanted to make a cool show and then they were afraid that it would be too cool and no one would watch it. Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Um, characters. Why don't you give me your take on uh, Cisco and the gang in this first episode? So I feel like, with the exception of Jake and to some extent Bashir, yeah, the characters we see here 
are pretty solid with my recollection of the Deep Space Nine characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, Odo, I think, is a little bit gruff, but I think that lasts through the first couple of seasons. I think he takes a while to warm up. And I think it is warm- that they do show him sort of warming up. Right. So that's even sort of potentially future character growth. I felt like, um, again, I don't want to compare it to what they turned into. I feel like Dax was super aloof. Like they were trying to give her this uh, wisdom. Uh, right, because she's a Trill and her symbiote has lived hundreds of years. Yeah, which I found very boring. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. She's pretty boring in this one. Yeah, she doesn't do much. She goes um, She goes into the wormhole with Cisco. That's pretty much what she does. She serves the role of the only character who trusts Cisco at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. He's kind of an outsider to most of these people. but None of them know him, but she knows him from her past life. Right. Um, what else? Um, O'Brien has very little to do in this episode. Yeah, I wonder if they've... No, that's odd to me because they're leaning on him as a transfer character. Yeah, I would have thought they would have gone O'Brien heavy. Did they just think we already knew him, so who cares? Because we don't really know him. I mean, he's in some episodes. I know, you know what, by this point we know him pretty good. By this point, we've seen a lot of him. We've seen the wounded. Um, I think that's the key. We've seen the wounded. We've seen power play. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Data's Day, not so much. He just acts like an angry asshole in that one the whole time. Yeah, Data Day is just an Irish piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, We've seen ships and bottles, though. He's into ships and bottles. Yeah, (laughs) no, we've... um, O'Brien has been spoon-fed to us, like, a little bit at a time in The Next Generation, just bits and pieces, but we we know him pretty well by this point. Yeah. But he's he's barely in this. Like, the uh, the engineering solution they have to the plan with the Cardassians, to the, the situation with the Cardassians, is half Major Kira's anyway. Yeah. It's like, he's he's not even... He's not even brilliantly solving a, the problem that they have. No, if anything, he seems really out of his element. A little bit. That's kind of what he's playing in this is, where am I? What is this place? I guess that's true. This is the guy who just came off of the flagship where everything works. Yeah, he's the only one of this crew that came from the good place. But they don't don't spend any time on him being a fish out of water, really. No. I don't think they ever do. No, he just starts playing darts and then who cares? (laughs) That's right. Sometimes he fights with his wife. (laughs) Who gives a shit? Uh... So yeah, the the major flaw for me is uh they don't give O'Brien anything to do. Bashir's a little off, but he never becomes likable, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, he skips a likable phase. He he yeah. does change characters, but he never changes to likable. Um and Jake's just a whiny kid, but you know whatever. Yeah. So, but the other characters are pretty much there where they're going to be. So for me this is like a 6. Okay. I gave it a five, so it's pretty close. I feel like they really push Kira, they push Cisco, and they push Quark. Right? Yeah, to a large degree. As like these are the characters that we feel like are important for this show. <clears throat> My problem with that is Kira is obnoxious in her uh general hostility. Yes. Cisco is a real downer. Not fun <laughs> to root true. for at all. 
he's a very sad sack. Yeah, he's a real fucking mopey little bitch. And I hate everything about Quark from the start and throughout the entire show. So much that I always tell you when the screenshot on the next episode on Netflix is Quark, it takes me like four days to get to that episode because I just, I can't, I don't <laughs> want to start it. Even if it has nothing to do with Quark and they just chose that screenshot, I can't take the chance. Um, uh, I didn't really like any of the characters, though I did feel like they spent a lot of time introducing them and trying to get us to know them. So I, I give them a five for effort. Yeah, and the, the characters are all different. Yes. So... Like, they're distinct from each other, and they have different roles to play. Although, again, right now, Dax's only role is Cisco's confidant, so that's not great. Yeah, she's kind of left out there. Um, and she later becomes so uh, frivolous and silly. She does, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, totaling it up, uh, I give this one a grand total of 17. Mm-hmm. Which is not good. No. Still beats uh, uh, Counter Farpoint for you, though. You gave it 19. Yeah. Uh, so that makes this 36. So, so far, the worst of the of the episodes we've talked about. I feel like that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like so that, let's, that, that definitely makes sense. Let's move on to Voyager. The uh, pilot episode of Voyager is called Caretaker. In Caretaker, uh, Voyager sets out with the aid of a convicted uh, terrorist to find a bunch of other terrorists from an organization called the Maquis who have disappeared in the Badlands, Mm -hmm. a weird region of plasma tornadoes in space. Right. Because... Uh, Captain Janeway's chief of security is in the middle of infiltrating this crew. And they've gone missing. So she and needs gone to missing. track him down. Uh, while there, they are mysteriously sucked uh, across space to a weird space station array in the Delta Quadrant. Which is the other uh, side of the galaxy. Far, far Where away. they po- party on a farm. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, then have weird needles pushed into them. Uh-huh. And then when they wake up back on the ship, suddenly the Maquis are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but each of them has a crew member missing. They have to uh, work together to find the missing crew who have been placed on a planet that the caretaker is overseeing as a kind of parental figure. I mean, that's what he is the caretaker of. Mm -hmm. Yes, a species on this planet. Uh, They deal with some Mad Max aliens who want water. Yeah, they do. And they rescue this race of very... uh, They rescue them from this race of very short-lived people called the Okampa, with the help of a weird space scavenger... Yeah, like an Oscar the Grouch in space. Less grouchy. Then the caretaker dies, and to prevent his powerful technology from falling into the hands of the Mad Max aliens, Mm -hmm. they blow it up. Leaving them stranded 70,000 light years from home. And there's where I think we should start. 
because to me the premise of the series wasn't revealed until the last minute of the show. It does kind of sneak up on you because they want you to think that this is a story about the Federation and the Maquis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it leads in with a fucking Star Wars crawl about (laughs) what's going on with the Maquis and, like, explaining the situation so you understand, like, sort of what's happening. Because no one from Starfleet that you know of, Tuvok, but no one is even shown in the teaser. It's all Maquis. Right. Uh, I actually should point out, Deep Space Nine starts with the dumb Star Wars crawl, too. Yes, they do. Just recapitulating the best of both worlds. To me, DS9 it, and Voyager are crazy similar. They have a, there's a, There are a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, again, I, well, you mentioned earlier, there's a handoff yep. where we get to see the Voyager crew on Deep Space Nine. That's right. Yeah, right. that's where Voyager is, is hanging out before they go on their mission to the Badlands we, or whatever. Although we only see Quark, right? Um, yes. Yeah, we see the station a lot, but we only, of the characters, we only meet Quark. We see Quark and we hear Morn mentioned. I think he's even in the scene, but he doesn't. He may even be he there. He never says he does, He never talks, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes. so, the, so the premise of the series, you only find out at the end. But what was the premise of this episode? Was it something about... Is it just the premise of two crews, the concept of two crews coming together to work as one? Because that only happens at the end, too. And it also is uncontroversial. Yeah. Like, no one seriously argues about it. Is the premise the rehabilitation of Tom Paris? They spend a lot of time on the rehabilitation of Tom Paris. To me, I felt like they really went uh, charismatic white guy strong again. Yeah. They went, everyone loved Kirk and Riker. People were kind of lukewarm on Cisco. So let's let's kick it right back into fucking Whitey Court. And kind of. They bring out this fucking Nick Lacarno dude. Play, okay, so the, Tom Paris is played by the guy who plays Nick Lacarno in an episode of The Next Generation. Uh, and he plays, like, the exact same character. It's, I mean, it's, he doesn't have the same backstory. But he has a similar backstory in that he was in Starfleet. And got in trouble for some shit. Right. You meet him where he would be. Yes. Like, it, Nick Locarno is on the next mound digging or <laughs> setting up a replicator or whatever he's supposed to be doing. And everybody who sees them both together goes, wow, you guys brothers? That's that fucking is, weird. Admiral Paris has a bastard son, <laughs> I guess. Right. And they're both criminals. Um, yeah. Um... Uh, to me, that was he, the premise. He of... has a little bit of Rolaren's backstory too, right? Because yes. he didn't follow orders, and some people got killed, and that's how he got drummed out of Starfleet. Yeah. And then he went to join the Maquis. He is in the line of Rolaren and Tam Elburn. Yeah, something happened that was horrific, and everyone's heard of it. And he does not get along with Chakotay no. for this episode. That's correct. Yeah, until at the end when Chakotay owes him a life debt. Because Chakotay is one of the most racist portrayals of a character in Starfleet. I'm telling you, dude. Uh, in Star Trek history. It's it, it's always been more acceptable to make fun of the Native Americans because they are all dead. I mean, largely. No, they have no real power. No one is going to stand up and complain. Yeah, he all throughout the episode, he's... he's and the whole series. He's a, a racist stereotype. Um, so to me, that was the premise of the episode, was the Tom Paris making good or getting a fresh start yeah, it's hard to argue with that as being the premise of the episode yeah uh because everything else is a big surprise reveal right 
So I mean, unless you'd heard anything about the show before it aired. <laughs> yeah, right. You read the TV Guide preview or whatever. Right. So what did you score that premise? I gave it a five. Um, Because I could identify what the premise was. And I, I, it's hard in the pilot. I mean, if you want to... It would have been hard to... If that's the premise you're going to do for the series, that they're stuck in the Delta Quadrant, I think it would have been hard to to get that into this episode. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, well, I think so too. They'd almost have to start off knowing they were stranded in the Delta Quadrant or something. I don't know. I, I gave it a five. And, and they're not stranded until the last minute, so... Um, yeah, you know, I think that's a fair score. I'm, I'm, uh, I think a five is fair, and that's what I'm going to give it to. Um, you're not... They don't do enough telling you how Tom Paris got where he did for you to be able to really empathize. Like, you don't know that he is a good guy who's been in some bad situations or maybe made a bad decision. Yeah, and... well, But he... They... They do much more demonstrating that he's a good guy than telling you he's a good guy in this. I mean, this really comes down more to execution of the premise. That's what I was going to say. And I think but, they do more telling you he's a or showing you he's a good guy than either telling you he's a good guy or telling or showing you he's a bad guy. Right. All, everything that you everything you learn about him being a bad guy is just seeing that Dr. Roga Danar doesn't like him. Yeah, and the first officer, they're both like, ugh, gross. Yeah, they're like, oh, and they're real catty. This, this ass, they just, essentially, they're just Riker to Rolera. That's exactly right, yes. And they're real gossipy and chatty and catty, and they and in the lunchroom, they're like, oh my god, I'm not gonna sip with that guy. So if that is the premise, yeah. how have they done? Um. So, like we just said, so I think, I think, they execute on the him making good part. They don't execute at all on him, on his troubled past. Because all we know about it is people don't like him. He explains it, and it's kind of like, I don't know. Hello. <laughs> I forgot something. <laughs> That's how you know it is a legit episode. Yeah. Um... So you know what I mean? Like they they only give you kind of a part on the execution. He does make good, um, but it's kind of like you don't really you don't get enough of the other the rest of it, and it's also kind of a who cares. Yeah, a little bit. It's kind of a who cares. What number did you land on? I gave it another five. You gave it another five. To me, if it is about redemption, I think they do a fairly good job of redeeming it. Again, that's kind of not a big swing. It's a very personal yeah. story. So, I gave the Man Trap an 8. Right. Because their premise was so easy. Yes, it was. Um, this one, I I think, uh, I'm going to give them a 7 for this. Again, I, I think that they did a good job of establishing that he really means well. And they also didn't do it in a crazy ham, ham-fisted way. Okay, I can buy that. Um, world building. Well, they are given the easiest job in this respect. Well, except for the original series. Um, in that they're transported to a faraway place, and there is a lot of opportunity for them to 
start to go in depth. Now, obviously, it takes more than one episode to build an entire new quadrant of races and cultures and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think a lot of the world building comes from. There, there's only, there's a limited amount they can do on Voyager in terms of world building because they're trading on two very recent shows that have been establishing their own canon. TNG and DS9 are TNG just finished and DS9 was ongoing. Right, even the opportunity of a mixed crew, yeah, it has already been explored in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and you know what? They don't tell you a lot about the Maquis, especially in this episode. Well, no, everything you learn about the Maquis, you get in that crawl. in the crawl, exactly. So they don't do any Maquis world building at all, which you think they'd have a chance to do since now half the crew, a few of the main characters, two of the main characters. Is it just two of them? Belana and mm, Chicote, Chicote and Torres. Yeah. Okay. Since two of the main characters are Maquis, but. They don't give you anything in the pilot about what that means for them. So, um, I gave them a, a five for world building because uh, you know they give you some they give you some stuff about the Okampa and their whole backstory and background. Some stuff about the Kazon. They give you a lot about the caretaker, but there's nothing. Nothing that feels like it should be lasting. Nothing that it sticks with you. Yeah. Um, so to me, they do a couple of things here that are actually pretty interesting. Okay. Uh, the part of the Delta Quadrant that they land in is clearly pretty far behind them technologically. Yes. Neelix has never heard of a transporter, and the idea of being able to replicate water... Oh, it's baffling ast- to everybody they meet. ...astounds everybody. Yeah. Uh, so that puts them in a situation where they have a technical advantage, but they are completely alone. Yeah. I, this is going to be sold out down the road. Right. This, this world that they're establishing here, this is not how it's going to remain. They're going to meet crazy aliens with crazy technology. And they need that in some cases in order to advance their journey home. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't put them in a situation where they're the most technologically advanced, but it's going to take them 90 years to get home. (laughs) That would get pretty boring. Unless you're willing to do the work of how they get even more technologically advanced on their own, right? So they're going to sell it out later. But those aspects are interesting. Yeah. The Okampa, I mean, it's... It's neat that they don't live very long, but that's just like, it's just one race and one trait of that race. Yeah. So that to me is not special. So this kind of a mixed bag. I think the part of the Delta Quadrant that we see feels very different from the rest of space that we have seen. That's true. Yes. So to me, they did a fairly good job there and I'm going to give them a seven. Okay. Um, characterization. Yeah. So moving on to the characters. So, who do we think they really pushed in this episode? So we already talked about Tom Paris. I feel like he's the biggest. Uh, Harry Kim. Yeah, young, fresh-faced, naive Ensign Kim, or whatever. Right. He is us. Sure. To some extent, he's our point of view character. Especially because the sweet spot for watching Star Trek is like ten years old. So yeah. Uh, and Janeway. Right. 
And really, no one else gets pushed. Yeah, you think they're going to push Chakotay, but no, he doesn't do anything. No. He doesn't do or say anything interesting or different or anything. No. Um, he is a he's a cigar store Indian. Yeah. Uh, another one I think they push is Neelix. Uh, you get a lot of Neelix. There's a lot um, of Neelix. And you get... I mean, he's the comic relief character, but you get too much Doctor. Yes. Too much emergency medical hologram. But... This is before he's gone into having to explore himself as an individual. Yes. And that means this is the least doctor we're ever going to get. Oh, yeah. That's so for sure. That is the, it's uh, still too much. Yes, but still yes. too much, but I celebrate it anyway because I was like, you know what? It's going to get worse. There's going to be a lot worse doctor stuff later on. So I think those are the characters that were pushed. Balana, oh, guess what? She's angry and she's half Klingon. She's got a bad temper. Did you know she's half Klingon? Her mom was Klingon. That's it. Yeah, she's Kalar. Yeah, they felt the need to tell us that she was half Klingon a lot. Um, she's Kalar, but like less, less interesting. Kalar's a much more interesting character now, than what we've seen of Balana so far. Now, if those are the ones they were focusing on. Were they effective in that? For Janeway, I feel like they gave us that scene with her live-in boyfriend or fiance or husband. I don't yeah. even know what he's supposed to be. He's the love cool... me, love my dog, as the scene you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he's the cool, casually dressed silver fox that she's got at home somewhere. Uh, and they have such a great thing going where they they have a pregnant dog together. And, yep. um, and uh, she talks sex stuff with him, which... Made me... Like, it's distressing. My mouth got all saliva-y like when I'm about to throw up. <laughs> and, um... You know, yeah, so she likes dogs, and her husband or whatever boyfriend is handsome, and she likes sex. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Uh, but she's also super capable, as shown by the fact that she goes to engineering and saves everybody. Like, she saves the ship. Right. Um, she also, um... She feels very deeply for her crew almost kirk like she has a lot of moments <laughs> even in the first episode where she's sitting around worrying so much you know that they show us like her that scene with her and tuvok where she she's just she's she's gotta get these people home did you know that guy who died he played the or the or harry kim's mom called and he played the she wants to send his clarinet he forgot his clarinet yeah, at home yeah yeah um anyway hated it all just hated it. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't find it interesting. Uh, Tom Paris, boy, does that guy talk a lot about himself. That is true. I'm just a bad, bad news. Stay away from me, man. I'm, I'm, you don't want to hang around with guys like me. I'll be in trouble then because I'm, I'm trouble. It's like, all right, that's gross too. Awful. Just awful. Neelix, this is the best Neelix you're ever going to get. Just That's very sad. Judging it on this episode... Neelix was kind of clever. He's, he tricks him a little bit. He tricks him a little bit. He's um, kind of kind of tough. You know, he's willing to take on all those Kazons and swing a phaser in their face and shoot their water right. and stuff. Yeah. He is still super annoying, all the Mr. Vulcan shit, all that, yeah. all that chilling in the bath and all yes. that awful. And uh, Harry Kim, there's nothing to like about that guy. There's nothing to have an emotion about. That guy is skim forget, milk. Forget which emotion. He is skim milk for sure. <laughs> Though he may be lactose intolerant. It's hard to say. Um, 
so I, f I felt like I hated all of the people that they pushed. I, I could not get behind any of what was happening at all. Um, the other characters, as we said, they, there was no, really nothing. There's nothing going on. So I gave it a three. A three. I, I think your three is generous. Okay. <laughs> I think it is criminal that they made no attempt to explore anything about the Maquis. Yep. Chakotay or Balan Torres' motivations. Mm -hmm. Show any other member of the Maquis Maqui crew. Yep. Well, there's that guy who wears, like, um, half of a catcher's chest guard. You see him for, he's there for a minute. He doesn't say any words. A minute, though. <laughs> I just noticed his chest guard. Um, they try so hard. They're like, it's a woman captain. Yeah. So that they try so hard to show that she is everything. That's right. That's right. She's not and, a stereotype of anything she can't be because she's every single thing. And still, we have seen this actress now in Orange is the New Black. Yeah, yeah. She can do so much better than this. Yeah. So they didn't even make effective use of her talent. Nope. In this characterization. So uh, this is a straight up one for me. Okay. All right. Again, I felt bad that the three I gave it, it rose to three because Neelix and the Doctor weren't as annoying as I know they can be. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, uh, when you add up my score, that's a 20 ah. and that's relatively high. That's, that's uh, only lower than the TOS one, right? Uh, yeah, and that actually lines up with how I felt about this. Like, I was not looking forward to watching this. Mm -hmm. um, but I was interested in this Delta Quadrant that they showed initially. The caretaker I didn't like. No. You know how I feel about supernatural entities. Thank you, Encounter at Farpoint, Emissary, and Caretaker. Yeah, we gotta do it every fucking time. For apparently. showing these super powerful characters. Yeah. Who are all childlike, by the way. Yes. Um, so it's 20 for me. Not so favorable from you. You gave it an 18. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. I think I told you I started to watch it and I got a terrible headache. <laughs> I had to watch it in two, two goes because I couldn't stick it. It is reasonably headache-inducing. <laughs> um, still, though, that is uh, that's second place. Uh, along with Encounter at Farpoint, two ahead of Emissary and six behind the Man Trap. Okay. Um, uh, real quick. So they're really clustered up because i know we're already long on time but real quick uh did you feel like it suffered from the same thing as ds9 where it sold out its own universe where it's like oh the maquis everyone watch out and then they're transported to another place because i know it makes you mad about ds9 but did it make you mad here or because you sort of enjoyed what they showed you in the in the delta quadrant where you're like eh, whatever no i think well i mean that's part of it but i think the reason that i don't feel like it sold it out is because this is not a setting. Okay. This is a single mission. Right. Okay. She is there to recover Tuvok, at which point he's going to go back to being her security officer. Right. Okay. And whatever evidence he's got on the Maquis will be turned over to whoever deals with it, and then Voyager will be done dealing with the Maquis for a while. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, this is, this is the outcome of one mission. It is not the premise of the... This is not Voyager's role. Right. Yeah. Um, real quick hitters. Gullivec has been in three Star Treks now. TNG, DS9, and Voyager. Yep. Uh, who cares about bioneural circuitry? Uh, I do not care. Does that ever make an appearance again, except as a part of the ship that breaks? 
Uh, no, it also does not matter that the ship's cruising speed is warp 9.975. Makes no difference. It's like the saucer separation in the pilot of uh, Next Generation. Exactly. Um, it's very fast compared to other Starfleet ships. We will never see another Starfleet ship. Yes. Um, is the second array that they mention like a long-term plot line or a trapdoor, you think, at this point when they're designing the show? I think... Like, is that something they're going to just do later on or something they want to have in their back pocket in case the show needs to be canceled after four seasons? I think it's probably a trapdoor. Okay. Um, I think it's actually the function that it serves in this episode is it explains why Janeway is willing to make this sacrifice. Yeah, just so everyone knows what we're talking about. They, the guy, the caretaker, mentions there's one just like him somewhere out there. There's another one who has the power to send them back. She left a long time ago. Good luck finding her. Right. But she does exist. The array does exist. So that's the tipping point for her to make the decision to destroy the one way that they know they could get back to the Delta. Which she does to save the, the, save the, or stop the, what is, why did she even destroy it? To stop the Kazon from getting it? Because if the Kazon get their hands on the array, they'll use it to kill the Okampa. Theoretically, it's actually not. It's, yeah, pretty flawed. Why they would not just use it to get all the power and water that they wanted, yeah, I don't right. know. But it's pretty flawed. Not explained. It is. It is meant to be for the Okampa, although they are also by destroying it, cutting off the Okampas. Like that's how the Okampa have been fed and clothed and powered yeah. for a thousand years. Um, now he's shut that down already, but like they could have. If they had taken control of the array, they could have restarted it. That's true. Um, uh, Janeway explains the entire premise of the rest of the series to the entire crew in in the last scene. Yes. We're in deep space, and we're going to have to try to get home, and we're going to look for every wormhole, every advanced technology, every advanced alien species. And it's like she's basically saying, here's what's in store for season one. Stay tuned. Yeah. And then finally... Why does Chakotay wait until the last possible second to transport off of that Maki ship before he collides with the Ray? Uh, it does not make any sense. Like, that ship did not look like it could juke out of the way. No, it wasn't going anywhere. And if they were going to shoot his ship down, doesn't matter whether he's on it or not. That's what I'm saying. Uh, no, that's pure, dumb, <laughs> dramatic nothing. Because I mean, you think he's going to explain why. Like, they're no, like, let's I mean, beam you off. He's like, no, not yet. Straight line. Yeah, he's like, not yet. And they're like, let's beam you now. And he's like, not yet. And you're like, okay, is he going to explain why? And then he goes, okay, now. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess he's being Commodore Decker in uh, the Operation Annihilate. Yeah, the Doomsday device. The Doomsday machine. Doomsday Sorry, machine. Operation Annihilate's a different one. Yeah. So anyway, those were my quick hitters from that episode. Uh, yeah, that's good. And. Uh, Let's uh let's go on now to Enterprise. Did you use that instead of the real theme because you knew I'd walk off the show if you played the real theme? I knew I could not play. It's been a long time getting from there to here. Ugh. Uh, uh, Marshawn and I have been watching it. We're in season four now. It's only four seasons long. And in season three, they like change up the tune. They change up the tempo a little bit, and they like put in some kind of folky guitar in the back. And uh, <laughs> it is somehow worse, somehow worse than the one in season one. It's like, dog, you knew what you did wrong. Why didn't you fix yeah, it? Yeah, you should have just taken the fucking words out, you dicks. Just put the DS9 theme in. Who cares? Yeah, no one's gonna notice. Uh, so Matt, this is a little bit of a different experience for me because 
this is the first of any of Enterprise I have ever seen. So you never just randomly turned it on to see what was going down. Right. Okay. So I've got no comparison to like how characters will Good. appear in the future. Um, That's the most authentic way to do this. It is, and it's a, we can't do it for all of them. Uh, I can do it for this show. Yeah. You're a little bit ahead of me, so you don't really have that luxury. You said you're in season four. That's yep. the last season, right? That's right. But even for me, I mean, I've seen the complete series multiple times of all the other ones, and I've never seen all of the Enterprises. So No, you've seen... I've never seen the end of Voyager. I have seen it. So Don't worry. It's, you didn't miss it. I've definitely seen the first season and maybe some of the second of Voyager, but I haven't seen it all. So yeah. I will be in that boat at some point in Voyager, but that's where I'm starting here. So uh, why don't you tell me about the episode Broken Bow? Oh, boy. Um, are you sure you don't want to take this one? Okay, so uh, a lot of flashbacks of uh, a little boy playing with his dad on the beach. So that, did I get it? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, is that your entire... No. Oh, there's more. Um, okay, so uh, they're launching... A, Starfleet's launching its first Warp 5 ship. It's... Um, Made with a fancy new engine that Captain Archer's dad worked on. Yes. Uh, Captain Archer, he's going to be the commander of this vessel. And he's got... Um, he's got a new a new crew that he's putting together for their first voyages. But before they have a chance to go do any cool adventures, a Klingon is found in Oklahoma on Earth. Uh, like some, some firefight and like a grain silo exploded or something uh the klingon is uh not dead but in bad shape and they got an alien doctor tending to him and everything um we find out that earth in this period uh, this is before kirk's starfleet there's no united federation of planets yet this is like after uh, the vulcans have made first contact with the humans so there's a lot of vulcans hanging out on earth trying to advise them how to get into space and what to do there and they all decide uh, this Klingon's got to go back. They got to send this Klingon home. And, and right, the Vulcans want him to just die. Yeah, the Vulcans are like the Minbari in Babylon Five. They're they're real. Like none of this is our concern. Yeah. Um, but Archer's like, no, we got this new ship, and we want everyone to know how cool we are. So we're going to take this Klingon home to his to his people, and this will be our first adventure. Uh, along the way, they meet. Uh, fucking self-cloaking alien shapeshifter dudes named the Sulaban. Right. Who were bad, and they're bad for reasons that aren't really well explained. Um, they they're Somehow, they're genetically enhanced. Genetically enhanced, and they're getting orders from a shadowy figure. Yes. They're doing the bidding of some shadowy figure that... I mean, it's like literally a shadowy figure. Right, it's very sinister. Yeah. But yes, he also is... You can't. He is a silhouette, and you cannot see his face. Yes, they were real literal with this one. Um, and they they keep trying to sabotage the ship, and they keep trying to stop their mission. It's unclear why, and they have to go to these outposts. This is why I asked you if you wanted to do this one. <laughs> I feel like my explanation is going on for fifteen minutes. Uh, eventually, they take this Klingon home, but on the way, they have um, space adventures. Is that yes. it. All right. They get their first taste of outer space. Uh, meanwhile, by the way, the entire time the crew and particularly Captain Archer are, well, I guess particularly Tucker, yeah. 
are butting heads with the Vulcan liaison, Mm -hmm. who it's sort of implied is there to tell on them. Yeah, she's a mole, basically, they think of her. Um, She's kind of their nanny, too. Yeah, she's the, um... She's not just the observer, she's also the science officer and second-in-command? Yes. Which I feel like is a weird arrangement that makes everyone really angry. Yeah. Uh, So this fits into the premise, right? And the premise is that Earth is bristling under sort of the Vulcan, Vulcan handholding paternalism. Yeah, the Vulcans are slowing them down. They want to get out into space and explore and do cool adventures. And the Vulcans keep telling them to take it easy and move slower and be patient. And they feel like they're ready now. Right. They're really trying to prove that they are ready to be out there. Yeah. Uh, so the premise is exactly the same as in Encounter at Farpoint. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Is humanity ready? Have they advanced far enough to be out in space? Yeah. That being said, I um, I gave the premise more credit because there's the... Uh, there, I feel like the Vulcans are a better foil than the omnipotent being who shows up and puts them on trial. Yes. I feel like it's... um. I think I don't know. I, I enjoyed the premise a little bit more. So what did you what did you give the premise? I gave it a seven. I felt like the, I feel like it was easy to identify, and um, and easy to carry on. Like it's this is going to be something that you can you can go to war with for the next however many episodes this show runs. Right, it's easy to imagine that they're going to discover all of the ways in which they're not ready to be out there. Yeah, because it's, like, basically it's just them. Like, I don't know if there are other ships, and this is just the most advanced one, or what. But, essentially, they're going to be going on a lot of first-time adventures. Yes. Um, Well, I mean, I agree with that assessment. Uh, I also think that they... Their actions were consistent with the premise at basically every step. Yeah. Like, at no point is Archer willing to concede that they can't finish this mission. This, I mean, it's a low-stakes mission. Yeah, right. Just, we're taking and this guy's, basically, it's wounded body home. Even when they meet with the woman on the space station mining station or whatever slash and she fucking flea market or whatever it and is. she tells them it's important that the klingons learn who is inciting all of these str- you know squabbles between the great houses mm-hmm. it's pretty low stakes for enterprise right like they don't have a dog archer doesn't have a dog in that fight yeah his motivation the whole time really is to prove that they are ready to be out there unchaperoned and it sounds like you're talking about execution of the premise right that i mean yeah that's true yeah that is that really does come down to execution so i guess scoring just on the premise uh i'm giving it a five same as encounter farpoint because it's the same premise <laughs> right <laughs> you didn't find it to be any more powerful than the uh, the other time no and it, uh... well so okay it's impossible to ignore the fact that uh, Encounter at Farpoint was over 10 years earlier. Yeah. Like, it's not Encounter at Farpoint restating this question. Yeah, it's really 15 years, yeah. Yeah, 
it's like this is covering a question that's been asked. Now, I I think they're probably going to explore it much more thoroughly. Well, and here's I guess here's my question about the premise. So, is the premise the same as Encounter of Farpoint, which was a question: Is humanity ready, or did this episode seem to have a take that yes, they are ready, or no, they are not ready? Well, I mean, they feel like they're ready, but in the same way as a teenager feels like they're an adult. Yeah. I think that the the viewer, it's, there's still room for the viewer to question whether they are really ready, whether the Vulcans have a point in all of this. Right. Especially if the viewer knows, like, what we have seen of Vulcans so far. There's no reason to ascribe weird emotional motivations for their actions. Yeah. Um, so, uh, to me, it's it's still... It should be a question. And if you just jump on the side of Earth on this, that's just, like, a weird chauvinistic reaction. Yeah. Well, the characters themselves are proven to be pretty chauvinistic as it goes on. Yes. So, let's leave that to them. Yes. Um. um so, Execution. So I gave it a seven again because I do feel like it, it, um, like you were saying, they act in a consistent manner with what the premise is. Uh, I just, you know, I'll give it an eight. You're bumping it up. Yeah, I think I'll give it an eight on execution because I think it does do a, a, a fairly good job of playing out the premise. I want to give it less because I hate everybody in the episode, but that's for later. Yeah. um, It's interesting. I think the first three quarters of the episode, everything is in service to the premise. The episode becomes weird action schlock at the end. Yeah. That's, um, don't worry. There's going to be more of that. Uh, so there's nothing about, their big conflict with the Suliban, uh, or even with Archer's discussion with the weird Shadow Man. Yep. Nothing in there restates the premise. Yeah. If anything, it, it they they do kind of abandon the initial premise in order to set up the rest of the series, which is I guess going to be some temporal Cold War nonsense. Right. Although we'll talk about that in the next yeah. Criterion, I think. Yeah. But you know what I mean? But I think you're right in that it does, in the end, abandon the premise to sort of kick off the rest of it. Yeah. So, um, to me, uh, I think most of it, like, again, many of the actions are very consistent with the premise. Uh, To me, it's a six in this score. Um, Just because the end is suddenly not about that anymore. Right. Okay. Um, World building. Uh... So, it's yet another attempt. I just keep thinking about that flea market space station they go to. Yeah. And it's just another attempt to... This is a... This is not Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. This is a darker... This is the no, aughts. Welcome to the aughts. Uh, it's the... I mean, first of all, welcome to Babylon 5. It's the yep. Zocalo. It's the Zocalo. The Vulcans are the Mimbari. <laughs> yep. Uh, the weird mining station is the Zocalo. Uh... The shadowy power play figure temporal cord cold war stuff is just the uh the Vorlons or whatever. Yeah. Uh so uh that is Yeah. Um 
it's it's real Babylon Five y there. Yeah, I found it all to be pretty tired. I, I wasn't impressed with the world building. The only thing they get to do different is they get to go. Uh, the Vulcans are around a lot, and um, Earth hasn't met any of these dudes yet. But you don't get a lot of. I didn't get a lot of like new stuff. Like yeah, I mean, I guess. The only the real only world building that's done is temporal Cold War, yeah. Like because that because of the temporal part, that's not just happening here, right? Right. So there's that's the only thing that I found to sink my teeth into. Yeah. The only problem was I don't know how well explained that was or what it means. All of the other world building is the differences between this time and the Star Trek that we've seen. Like, they don't trust the transporters. Yeah. They gotta get in their underwear and rub gel on each other. But I feel like a lot of this is like, they hammer you over the head with it, and it's so dumb. They're like, let's think of everything that is in the other ones and talk about how they don't exist yet. Or talk about how it's brand new. Or Here's a new weapon, it's called a phase pistol. It's got a stun setting. So rather than, like, inventing cool new stuff, they're just like... Um, it's all the stuff that you know from before, but it's new. And it's also not show, don't tell. It's telling. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, so to me, Temporal Cold War is the only thing that's interesting so far about what's happened. Uh, world building wise, it's a three. I gave it a two. You gave it a two. I didn't feel like I knew much more about what was going on there at the end of the episode than I did at the beginning. Uh, characterization. Um, I hated all these fucking people. Um, who did they push here? They uh, they push Archer hard. Right, Bacula. Yep, Scott Bacula. We get a lot of T'Pol. Yep, but I don't even know if it's interesting. It's just like, she's around. And a fair amount of Tucker. Yeah, way too much Tucker. And everybody else is a background character. I agree. Um, Tucker is maybe my least favorite character in any show. Now, I don't know if how much of that is in this episode, but it's set yeah, up I in didn't, this episode. I didn't see anything particularly objectionable in this episode. It's, I think it's set up in this episode, because um, he's, uh, he's a good old boy. Yeah. And uh, Also, whatever they were arguing about when they were rubbing gel on each other, I went to my happy place, so I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure there was some characterization done there. I could oh, not watch it. Fucking these assholes who took over after Roddenberry, they kept trying to amp up the sex appeal, because that's what people want out of their Star Trek is sex. We're going to make this the sexiest Star Trek ever. I think they said that in Voyager 2, and then they went, you know what, we're going to make it even sexier. Every time they get back from a mission, they have to get in this chamber and rub gel all over each other's bodies. I guess they um they pushed Dr. Phlox a little bit too. Yeah. Um he's like yeah. uh he's a sociopath, right? Something like that. I mean, it he's, seems um, that way. Um like he can't wait to cut everybody up and see how their shit works. Oh yeah, he's a real uh scientist. He <laughs> wants to know what's in their bodies. Um Archer is a petulant child. Yep. They way overdo the way, how much he hates uh, the, the Vulcans. Scott Bakula is a super weird choice for this role. Yeah, I don't really get Cause it. Because he's like such a weird, soft spoken, mush mouth person. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then they try to that make he him has, tough. He has no command presence. <laughs> and they try to make him tough the whole series. It's by not, the way. N- he's not tough. Yep. 
it's aggravating. Um, he's real. I gotta be super heroic in every situation. Um, I gotta go on every away mission, and I gotta sacrifice myself for the crew every time. And, um, yeah, he's really hard to take. And again, just so petulant that, um, I never know who to blame, whether it's, whether I should blame the Vulcans or the, the humans. Yeah. Who's the real dick here? Because the humans are dicks. I can, I want to step back for a second and amend my world building three down to a two. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And it's because I, I think it is criminal how little we are told about what Starfleet is. Oh yeah. And how it works. That's what I'm saying. I don't even know if they're the only ship or if they're just the best ship. I don't even know. Like, they have ranks and uniforms and stuff. There must be... Who knows? There's an admiral. This can't be everybody, but nothing is explained. We only ever see five dudes. Yeah. Like, that's Starfleet. It's those five dudes. As far as we know. Yeah, it's not good. Um. So, yeah, I gave I gave the characters a one. Oof. I thought they were all terrible. I didn't think we learned anything interesting about any of them. I thought they were awful. Everybody is such a cardboard cutout yeah. in this. They don't know what to do with like Mayweather. They're like, he's the black guy. Right. He sits on the in the zero gravity spot in the ship. Yeah. Alright. He's black, but he's good natured because he's black and we can't risk it. We can't make him he's anything a, else. He's a boomer. I don't know what that means yet, yep. but he's one. <laughs> That's right. That's world building right there. Yeah. Uh yeah. Like he's he's very amused by being on the ship. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's Hoshi. She knows languages. Yeah. Except she's not, like, so great with Klingon. That's comic relief. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to sink your teeth into here with these characters. Reed's British. I forgot he was a person. There you go. That's what I'm saying. What is his job on the ship? Phaser guy. Shoots phasers. (sighs) Yeah. This is what I'm saying. Not a lot is done, and the ones they push, I just, I wanted them to fail. I wanted every character agree. they push to die. I agree with your score. This is straight up That's one. That's a one. <laughs> and then we gave it the same on both world building and characters. So. Yeah. Uh, so I give this a total of 14 points. Ouch. That is not good. You, do, you gave it a little higher. You gave it 18. Okay. But at 32, it is the lowest That's in the lowest a... A pretty tight pack. Okay. Like, the spread here is 32 to 44. Um, Give us the recap. Yeah. Who uh, who won? So, that meets the winner of this week, the original series with the man trap. Wow. And that is, like I would have thought, such an ordinary episode, but okay. I mean, it is, but I think that really is its advantage in this, is that it's a regular-ass episode. Yeah, I think we'll find out if the regular episodes are just better than the pilots. Right. Um... Man, uh, so apart from the surprise, do you have any closing remarks? Um, we're going to try to keep it shorter from now on. I think yeah. because we these were pilots. We'll just say that's why it went longer. But um, um, no, um, uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of which series is the best, but this will at least give us numbers. Uh, I mean, but this, so if you'd asked me this question, I would have said the next generation is the best, but uh, original series jumps out to an early lead. And frankly... Uh, it is hard to say, looking at these episodes for next week. Uh, not next week, probably two weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, which will be the best? Uh, there's a possibility that it could be a Deep Space Nine or Voyager episode. All right, so what are the episodes that we're going to watch? So, for the original series, we have Charlie X. All right. That's pretty bad. There's no, it's a pretty bad episode. No right way to hit a woman. 
There's no right way to hit a woman. But it's going up against the naked now. Yikes. Uh, Deep Space Nine episode called Past Prologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parallax for Voyager. Right. And Fight or Flight for Enterprise. Okay. All right. So maybe we'll be back next week with a regular episode. Yeah, kind I think we have to break these up. We, uh, I have cleanser. to watch all five of these episodes that before too. the next time we do this. So. All right. Well, you guys can find us. Um, do you want to read tweets or do you want to wait save that for a regular episode? I think we do that in a regular episode. Yeah. It's going to be a longer segment because there are quite a few. All right. Um, you can find us at brotherdate.com. You can tweet us at brotherdate. Uh, go to the iTunes and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back next week. And if you super hate this format, let us know. Yeah. But, we figured we'd talk uh, about Star an Trek for an project. hour and a half every episode anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye. He explains it, and it's kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I forgot something. Subscribe.